From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we look at the alarming surge in coronavirus cases among California's Latino residents, who make up 39% of the state's population, but nearly 60% of reported COVID-19 cases. With many Latino residents in essential jobs that require them to work outside the home, they're more likely to interact with the public and more vulnerable to exposure. We look at what can be done to blunt the sharp rise in cases. Join us. You're listening to Forum from KQED. I'm Mina Kim. Calls are growing louder for more workplace protections and more testing as coronavirus cases rise sharply in California's Latino community. The Los Angeles Times reports Latino residents are testing positive at twice the rate of white residents in L.A. And in San Francisco, where they make up 15 percent of the population, health officials say they are half of all reported cases. We talk this hour with people working to bring down those numbers and to address the inequities that are making the pandemic more devastating for the community. Joining us is Jacqueline Martinez-Garcel. She's CEO of Latino Community Foundation based in San Francisco. Thanks so much for joining us. Kristen, and, thank you for having me. And also with us is Dr. Kristen Bibbins-Domingo. She's professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and professor of medicine at UCSF's School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kristen Bibbins-Domingo. Thank you. And also with us is Tatiana Sanchez. She is an immigration and civil rights reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Tatiana Sanchez, glad to have you here as well. Thank you for having me. And Tatiana, I mentioned the numbers in San Francisco, and your analysis actually finds Latino residents are nearly 60% of cases with a known ethnicity, where the ethnicity is reported, despite that the community is just 15% of the city's population. I mean, what is driving that stunningly disproportionate impact? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are many factors at play. Number one, uh, which is a huge factor, is the fact that many uh, Latino people work essential jobs and have worked essential jobs throughout the pandemic. And so when you think about that, that increases anyone's exposure when you continue to go to work every day while everyone else is sheltering in place. Um, so studies done throughout San Francisco and even in cities beyond uh, the Bay Area show that many are working essential jobs that require them to continue to go out to work and that exposes people inevitably to the virus. Um, and I think also it's common for um, Latino residents to live, especially in the Bay Area where housing, where uh, rent is extremely expensive. It's common for many families to live um, in an apartment or in a home together to share a home. And when you have many people that are sharing a single home, again, that increases your exposure and also your um, susceptibility to the virus. Um, and, you know, it's something that we are seeing a lot of in the Bay Area, even before the pandemic started, is families that have to share a home because rent is so high. And that has made them very vulnerable to the virus. So, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, we're hearing Tatiana talk about one of the primary reasons being the fact that uh, 
Many Latino residents are in jobs deemed essential that also in, involve interacting with public or others. It raises the question, of course, of what workplace protections are like. I mean, have they gotten better? Yeah, I think that's one of the, the most uh, striking uh, things uh, with this um, and an important element of the story. I, I think the work that um, that many of my colleagues did at UCSF to do a study um, giving us the data from the mission district in one, um, one census tract really highlighted how if you were in a census tract and uh, uh, the Lat Latino community within that census tract was really um, uh, those were the people who were testing positive. And it was because uh, they were, just as Tatiana said, uh, people who were working at a time when most of the rest of us were sheltering in place. And then they were being exposed in the workplace and then bringing that infection home. And really that was, that was where the outbreak um, really started to occur. I think it really means that we have to think about workplaces as uh, places we have to really focus on in protecting workers. We have already seen there's some bad actors in this. We've had reports in LA of, um, of apparel companies that you know have 300 workers uh, uh, infected and four deaths already in I think Los Angeles apparel. Um, there are clearly workplace environments like meat packing plants and even in our, um, in our farm workers where they're also living in crowded conditions. So we really have to make sure that we understand how to protect workers in these environments that are themselves um, high risk work environments. And then I think also in our more informal sectors and in our small businesses, we have to give those businesses more of a sense of how to also protect the workers if, uh, who are continuing to work there. Workplace protection is becoming an increasingly important part. And unfortunately, among our Latino populations, oftentimes working in environments where they don't have those protections. And so it sounds like you're talking about direct outreach to these different workplaces. Yeah, one of the things that I really, um, that I think we have learned a lot from doing this work with um, our UCSF's Latinx Center of Excellence, um, with other of our investigators, is how uh, important it is to work with our community partners. Community partners are oftentimes uh, the, the trusted source of information. Um, and so getting the, the, the word out of, of how to do this. But I think over time we've become, we've realized how important it is to work directly with the, the, um, the work environments themselves. Again, I think there are bad actors who uh, we need regulation to enforce, but then I think we also have to give more information um, to, uh, to small businesses, to the more informal sectors, to individuals who work there and to the small business owners who are, who are trying to make, make this work to figure out everything that they can do uh, to protect people in those sectors. And Jacqueline Martinez Garcel, you have written about the importance of supporting these small businesses as well with the resources to be able to provide the support and the protection. That's right, Mina. And it's not just the not small nonprofits, but it's, excuse me, not just the small business, but also the small nonprofits that uh, Dr. Bivens Dominguez has mentioned, the nonprofits that have the trust and relationships with the communities that are mostly impacted. And before we go deeper on this question on, on what needs to be done, I just really want to highlight the fact that in California, we have 112,000 Latinos who've tested positive. That's more than the entire country of Canada right now has in terms of COVID cases. The response that we need right now is not a disjointed response, letting people just kind of figure this out. We need our governor and those in power 
power to step in and, and not just uh, give instructions, but hold people accountable, help employers accountable for the lives of the people that are being impacted right now. 3,000 Latinos have already died. But if you look at places like the Imperial County, I mean, the cases there are devastating. 95% of death are among Latinos. And the hospitals are so overwhelmed that an average number of 17 people are airlifted to places like Cal to San Francisco in order to get the care that they need. That's not okay for the fifth largest uh, economy in the world. We need to do better than that. Absolutely. Imperial County has had the highest infection rates of all counties, I believe, in the entire state. And and you, Jacqueline Mar martinez Garcel, have some recommendations for what the state can do in terms of, you know, a coordinated statewide response. That's right. And and Dr. Bivens-Dominguez has already mentioned the guidance, but it's also the accountability, both small and large corporations need to be held accountable in terms of how are they protecting their workers. We also need a much larger investment in the nonprofits that are able to provide direct relief to the families that are living in situations where they can't afford not to go to work. Um, Tatiana mentioned this already. I, cost of living was enormous prior to this. And so if you were going on the fourth month of shelter in place, only one out of five Latino can afford to work from home. That means that four out of five have to go back out there to actually earn an income to feed their families. If now is a moment for us to actually invest in those families, just the economic floor, we need to do more than just the 1,200 that was made available um, a couple of months ago. And Nancy Pelosi, we know, has already put forth another stimulus package. Uh, but we need our leaders across the country and here in California to push for this next stimulus package to be passed because our families are making the decisions between getting out there to work and putting their lives at risk because the other alternative is not having food on the table. And that includes the 90% farm workers who feed us right now that are also working for those some of those bad actors that Dr. Vivens Dominguez is talking about. Yes, and Tatiana Sanchez, given what uh, Jacqueline Martinez Garcel is talking about, I mean, what kind of impact do you see these shutdowns that were just announced uh, by the governor yesterday having on the Latinx community? I mean, it, it's this interesting sort of catch-22 where you have m less people maybe interacting and out there, uh, less opportunity for infection, but at the same time, as uh, Jacqueline is pointing out, a, a need to work. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And it it's sort of a catch-22, as you said, because on one end, if these people continue uh, going up, going to work, they expose themselves. But at the same time, many Latino uh, families have lost their source of income and have no income whatsoever coming in and have had to go to food banks, borrow money from people. I've spoken to many people who have had to borrow money from loved ones to make ends meet. And quite frankly, there are some families who are not even sure how they're going to pay next month's rent. Um, so this has been devastating for those families who were already on uh, the brink of poverty, again, because cost of living is so high in the Bay Area. And now you add the effects of this pandemic. And it's, it's just been disastrous for many families. And once again, they are afraid of uh, how they are going to be able to afford rent down the line. It's not something that they're going to have to think about just one or two months from now, this is going to be a long-term effect that um, is really uh, going to push many families um, into further into poverty. Cost of living is so high here, but also in so many parts of the state. And Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, 
what about in terms of access to health care? That's also been raised as one of the factors that could be driving higher rates of infection. Yeah, I think um, I think access to healthcare is critically important. I think um, uh, concerns about access are the things that delay people getting tested. One of the things I think that our, our mayor talked about early this morning is how in San Francisco, um, the rates of infection are highest in the south and the eastern portion of the city in the Bayview, Sunnydale and Mission neighborhoods, but our testing is not located there. Hmm. And so for people who don't have um, who don't have health insurance and who are even thinking about how to access tests, um, they're not geographically located where they are. They might have concerns about the follow-up from testing. We know across the country that many um, black and brown communities are um, uh, seeking uh, healthcare later. Um, and I think that that is probably related to uh, some of the worst outcomes that we also see. I think within our healthcare settings, we know that there are concerns about bias in the distribution of resources, concerns about um, about equitable treatment. Um, but mostly I, I worry that this is a vulnerable group that is being exposed to the virus. We know that there are infections there, um, but we're not doing the things to mitigate any of those concerns about the, um, the, the types of, of needs uh, in order to diagnose somebody who has an infection and help them with isolation and quarantine. One of the things that I would really want to underscore, and I, I use the example in San Francisco where in general we've gotten our infection rates pretty, pretty well under control. Even during that time when we had them under control, this infection was actually smoldering in our Latinx populations in San Francisco. And I think it makes us realize that both as a city and as a state, we have to not just look at the average effects, we have to look at those effects of where actually the infection is actually occurring. We have to look there, we have to target our testing there, we have to target our resources there for what uh, individuals, families need to isolate and quarantine, and we have to make sure that they're tied back into healthcare services. And all of that is important. We can't just look at average numbers. We really have to put resources to the communities that are most affected. Is that where you feel like we dropped the ball? I mean, looking back, I remember we were reporting about concerns about disproportionate rates of infection in communities of color generally, but also saw lots of stories in early May about uh, the Latino community already showing disproportionate impacts. And yet we're here in, in mid-July and it feels like we're just beginning to target our efforts. Yeah, I, I think it's right. You know, it, I think what is not true is that the pandemic is not the great equalizer. Um, we know that communities are disproportionately affected. Um, uh, we've talked about the reasons here in our, our Latino communities, those we need to acknowledge. But while the pandemic is not the great equalizer, the pandemic does remind us that we're all interrelated that um, we could never have opened up our economy safely without understanding where the virus is still in our communities, without figuring out what we need to help those communities to actually get viral transmission under better control. And so we are now as a region, as a city, as a state, 
really paying the price for not really focusing our attention on the communities where the virus was still being transmitted at such a high rate. And, um, and with a, our, our Latino community being a third of the population or more in the state and representing well over 50% of the cases, it was very clear that we were never going to be able to get this under control without saying, what do we need to do uh, to, in terms of testing, in terms of masking, in terms of messaging better through trusted partners with our community organizations to really get the message out it was never going to be something that that uh, was going to end well, especially as we reopen. Well, we're joined now by Dr. Ravi Kavaseri, a medical director of quality and population health at Ultimate Health Services in Southern California. It's a network of community health clinics there. Dr. Ravi Kavaseri, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Yes. Yes, you are. Thanks. And. Your uh, clinic, as I understand it, is focused in an area of southeast Los Angeles. Can you tell us what the situation is like there? Of course. Yeah, I, I work for a group, uh, Ultimate Health Services. It's, uh, it's the largest fairly qualified health center in the United States. And um, we started in 1969, over 50 years ago, um, as a free community health clinic in East Los Angeles. Um, from its beginning, um, Ultimate has been uh, dedicated to serving the communities of East Los Angeles and now um, the northern parts of Orange County as well. Um, the communities that we serve are predominantly Latino populations. Um, almost everybody that we serve um, would be um, folks who are uh, largely medically underserved, um, who face a significant amount of social complexity and medical complexity in their lives. And so we were hearing Dr. Kirsten Bibbins Domingo talking about the need for testing. And I'm wondering if you are seeing an increase in terms of demand for testing and whether there's capacity to meet that demand, especially where you're focused. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, the answer is yes, there is a demand for testing. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, in um, the early part of this year, um, our medical group saw this, you know, that um, uh, like everybody on this call um, and your listeners just so deeply understand that we're located at the epicenter of this pandemic. Um, you know, we serve communities for the vast majority of our patients um, for all of the reasons that, um, you know, um, uh, this group has so articulately described, um, you know, cannot um, uh, achieve, you know, the care that, uh, that they need to achieve. Um, we realized that we needed to offer testing because um, this is where COVID was going to hit. Um, these were the communities that were going to wear bear the largest brunt, and, and these are, you know, frankly, testing deserts. And so uh, we started with a partnership um, to get access to tests. Um, and so we, um, in the first few months, uh, March, April, and May, we were partnering with the Los Angeles and Orange County Departments of Public Health. And I think at one point in time, uh, we were doing about 11% of all testing for all residents around Los Angeles and Orange counties, and not just for our patients. You know, we were doing that for members of the communities that we serve. Um, many of the folks who got tested were folks, both community members and, and not just our patients um, in our outdoor testing sites. Um, this was through partnerships with the city. There was the CARES Act that we um, partnered with in order to support testing for residents. Um, and absolutely, I would say in July today, you know, we've been doing this for several months now, and, and I myself have worked our outdoor evaluation centers and continue to see our patients. And I would say today, um, every single day in my clinical practice when I talk to patients, um, we have uh, a deep interest from patients who want to get tested, who need to get tested, and testing is not at capacity to meet the needs of um, what our communities are asking for.
It's not at capacity. I have read stories that clinics have had to turn people away who are trying to get tested, and it sounds like that is happening for you as well. What needs to be done to help clinics like yours to be able to better serve the needs of the community? Yeah, it's a great question, you know, and, and I think we've been luckier than most in that um, as, a, as a large federally qualified health center compared to some of our counterparts that are community health centers with fewer resources, um, we've been able to organize a, um, I think, a, you know, a response that I've been extremely proud of in terms of just our ability to get access um, by forming these key partnerships with departments of public health in Los Angeles and Orange County to get, um, I know as of June, we had performed about 42,000 tests in the communities that we had served and um, that number will continue to grow up, uh, to go up. Um, so what does this mean? I think the first thing is just access to tests, right? It, it, it's low barrier testing. Um, testing has to take place in the communities, right? They, we cannot expect folks to go someplace else. If you want to test where I want to test, um, it has to be easy to get a test. Um, and so um, the, the barriers to that, I think, in, in, in my mind, are really around supplies um, mm -hmm. and access to testing supplies. Um, and then making it easy, uh, not just to get a test, but to get results. I think we forget about that piece, too. Um, one of our early learnings, um, which was, um, it makes a lot of sense as I'm going to describe it to you now, but, you know, it took a moment for us to even see this take place, was um, we, uh, we solved the first problem of getting tests, and we got a lot of tests, and we tested a lot of folks. But then there's the second piece, which is getting those test results to patients. And we found that that actually was extremely challenging for some of our patients um, who did not have reliable residences or addresses or phone numbers or contact mm. information. Um, as, as you all know, um, this is not just about COVID. I mean, this is um, well known long before COVID for the communities that we've served. Um, it's been really difficult to access good healthcare for a long time. Um, and there've always been a lot of trade-offs that folks have had to take care of, but um, Care has been really basic medical care. You know, take testing as a uh, proxy for any type of medical care that patients receive. And, you know, I see this every day in my office for the patients that I take care of. Um, for medically underserved patients, uh, medical care is about long wait times, you know, just really arcane rules around how do you go see a specialist, how do you get a test, how do you get your doctor on the phone. Um, and then when care is difficult to navigate, um, you know, that, that health absolutely suffers. And so for us, I think some of the things that we have seen are just for our patients, um, it's about access to testing, but then it's all the other steps that need to take place. And, and I think that's a key message, too, which is when we give guidance to folks um, and the CDC gives guidance um, around sheltering in place, um, staying at home, these doctor's orders, right, um, they're frighteningly difficult to adhere to in the real world for anybody. But for our patients and um, for communities of color, there are oppressive financial and social circumstances that pre-exist COVID and have been here for a very long time. Um, and that makes the adherence to these plans almost, I think, um, tragically impossible. Dr. Ravi Kavaseri of Ultimate Health Services in Los Angeles, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for the opportunity. We're also talking with Dr. Kirsten Bibbins Domingo of UCSF, Jacqueline Martinez Garcel of the Latino Community Foundation, and Tatiana Sanchez at San Francisco Chronicle. We're also talking with you, our listeners, about the high coronavirus infection rates among Latino residents in California. And we want to invite you to join the discussion. What are your questions? What are your concerns? What are some potential strategies? Call us 866-733-6786 or reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break.
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California's Latino residents have been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. They make up about 39% of the state's population, but account for nearly 60% of reported infections. And we're talking about ways to reduce the spread and risk of infection in the Latinx community with Dr. Kirsten Bibbins Domingo, professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF School of Medicine, Jacqueline Martinez Garcel, CEO of the Latino Community Foundation based in San Francisco, Tatiana Sanchez, immigration and civil rights reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle and with you our listeners you can email us your questions forum at kqed.org you can reach us on Twitter and Facebook at kqed forum or give us a call 866-733-6786 again 866-733-6786 and Jaime writes unfortunately many of the Latinos living in overcrowded housing in the Bay Area are in the country illegally and have come here specifically to make as much money as possible while spending as little as possible. This leads to unsafe, overcrowded, and quite possibly illegal housing situations where coronavirus can easily spread. A listener tweets, I'm Latino, only now I'm seeing more Latinos wearing masks in my community. How do we improve communication that mask use will help not getting infected? Tatiana Sanchez, in terms of communication to the community, there's a couple of things to hear that came up with listeners' comments. Um, do you feel like you're seeing now in your reporting more targeted efforts to improve communication? Absolutely. I think that's something that cities and counties and even organizations had to reevaluate early on because um, they were seeing that that message perhaps was not being carried into Latino communities as effectively as it should. Um, but I think many people have doubled down on those efforts to emphasize, you know, the need to shelter in place and also the need to properly care for yourself if you are going out or if you do have an essential job um, that you need to report to, to every day. Um, so I think that's definitely, um, there was definitely a tremendous amount of progress that was made throughout the months in terms of reaching these communities and even providing messages in Spanish and um, on platforms that they, that let Latinos uh, have access to in order to carry that message across. And then in terms of providing information, this was another issue that was raised in terms of especially we had the comment about the undocumented community, a willingness to get tested and to provide information to the government. Yes, and I'm glad someone brought that up because it is definitely a factor that affects a lot of uh, Latinos because for undocumented immigrants in particular, there is a fear of walking into a doctor's office, even if they are feeling ill, you know, there's this fear of, am I going to inevitably out myself as undocumented? Will they ask me my information? So that is also another layer that is affecting many Latino residents. Um, but I think, again, many organizations have doubled down and jurisdictions have doubled down um, in letting residents know that, hey, you are not going to be asked um, your legal status, you won't have to share that. It's just important that you get tested and that you seek the care uh, that you are in need of. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot more of that now because people are understanding that there was some distrust and some fear, um, which is understandable when when we're talking about undocumented immigrants who um, you know have 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 a fear of coming forward to a lot of the systems that are in place. And let me go to caller Norma in San Francisco. Hi, Norma. Join us. 
Hi, good morning. My name is Norma Garcia. I'm the Director of Policy and Advocacy for the Mission Economic Development Agency in San Francisco's Mission District. And a couple of comments here. Um, What we know about coronavirus right now really should cue us up as a city, as a state, as a country to do disaster preparedness around making sure that the most vulnerable communities are protected uh, for the next outbreak. Because we're not done yet. And we do this for earthquakes, we should be doing this for health emergencies as well. And my second point is it's really important for us to understand that the high infection rates, the high death rates that we're seeing in the Latino community and the African American community as well live on top of existing socioeconomic factors. So um, the profound inequities that people are experiencing with access to affordable housing, um, safe jobs, uh, freedom from uh, social injustice, these are all contributing factors, and we're seeing them manifest in the high infection rates. To remember that what's happening here affects everyone. This isn't just a Latino problem or or an African-American problem. This is a societal public health issue, and we all need to be on board here. The last point is that um, this, what we're talking about here is not just health impacts. We're talking about economic impacts here because there are a whole host of individuals who are unable to go to work and provide for their families and to be those essential workers that everyone relies on to stock our grocery stores, to serve us in restaurants, to take care of our children in our homes, and all of the other important roles that essential workers provide. So um, just to say that we need to be concerned as a society and make sure that everyone is protected, especially the most vulnerable. Norma Garcia, I'm so glad you called in. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. And Jacqueline uh, Martinez-Garcel, would love your reaction to what Norma is saying, because there were echoes of that in the piece that you wrote recently for the San Francisco Chronicle about how much California's recovery really does hinge on the Latino community's recovery. That's right. Everything that Norma said is absolutely right. First of all, we can't go back to how the way things were before, because how they were is what got us into this mess. This public health crisis has followed policies and the systems that we set in place in order for it to have such a devastating impact on Latinos. But when we think about rebuilding the future and getting a stronger economic support, investing in solutions that will build wealth in our community so that we don't have to come back to this place. We look back to the 2008 recession, it was Latina that helped California recover from that recession. 111% increase in terms of new businesses that were started help California get back on its feet. And so right now, the question for all of us, Jacqueline, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. We're having a little bit of trouble with your line. We're going to try to get you on a better line in just a moment so that you can finish that thought. Uh, In the meantime, I'm going to bring Mark from Albany into the conversation. Hi, Mark. Join us. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm an employer in a restaurant, and California has free testing. And I've suggested to many of the staff, go and get tested, see how you're doing. But I cannot get the results back because of the California privacy laws. Um, Thereby, if an employee may have COVID but feel they have to work, uh, how do I protect the coworkers, the business, the customers, if an employee who feels they have to work and is asymptomatic doesn't tell us, you know, where does that leave us? I would. I hope in the future you would bring on some legislators to discuss this issue because now this is all part of it, of the how we're going to resolve and deal with this COVID nineteen issue. Mark, thanks Thank for you. raising that. Doctor Kirsten Bibbins Domingo, do you have any thoughts for Mark? 
Yeah, I think I think it's bringing up a really uh, a really important point. I think that there are um, there there are business owners establishments that really want to protect their workers, want to think about how to um, how to incorporate testing as a part of doing that. Um, but testing is um, is something that really uh, the, the rights to the results of that test really sit with the individual. And I, I think over time we're going to have to think through ways in which um, we give businesses better advice about how to incorporate testing into their strategies that also protect the rights of workers um, in those environments so that they because they also might risk a fear risk being uh, laid off uh, being fired uh, for, for these test results. We also have to educate uh, the people who are working um, that testing is only effective if one actually uses that test result to then take action to protect uh, themselves and others. And so I think there's got to be communication, trust, and availability of testing across the board that allows um, uh, you know, uh, business owners who want to do the right thing and workers who want to do the right thing to keep um, themselves, um, their colleagues, their businesses, and others safe. That, that is the, the essential feature in, in this pandemic is how we're, we're all interrelated and we're going to have to find systems of working together that protect individual rights but also allow businesses and, and employees to, to work together to, to keep everyone safe. And uh, Jacqueline Martinez-Garcel, I mean, it's also, as you were talking about, the broader conditions that create a situation where a, a, an employee doesn't feel able to be able to communicate whether or not they have a positive test result because they want to do the work, because they need to do the work, and those conditions need to change moving forward. That's right. I mean, people fear losing their jobs right now. That's just the reality that they live in. Um, and I do want to, I, I want to just balance this conversation between that fear that a lot of Latinos are experiencing of having to work and maintain their jobs in order to maintain their income to the question that Nora brought up in terms of how do we rethink rebuilding a California where it's more inclusive and Latinos are not left behind from the economy that they have helped build. And the point that I was making earlier is that in 2008, Latinas Small businesses helped California recover from that recession with a rate of 111 percent increase in small businesses that were started that helped the entire economy kind of find its way back home and in terms of its strength. And what we need to do right now is invest in these small businesses, invest in these entrepreneurs, not wait for things to get worse. I think about groups like Prospera Cooperative out here in the Bay Area who are incubating immigrant-led businesses, ensuring that they have the capital right now to keep their doors open, to keep their employers um, on, on their payroll, given the fact that less than half of Latino businesses actually qualify for the PPP loan. That's another problem that we need to talk about in, in, at the scale in which we need to address this issue. But then it's programs like for, uh, Prospera Cooperative and others that actually help provide the capital that these small businesses need to actually make it through and keep their employers um, employed without the fear of them getting contracting COVID and not showing up to work. Um, taking care of those needs right now would benefit the entire state of California. And let me go now to Maggie in Oakland. Hi, Maggie, join us. Hi, Maggie, are you there? Yes. Thanks for coming on. What's on your mind, Maggie? Um, I'm worried if my mom and my dad get the coronavirus again. They had the coronavirus? 
They got it one time, and and I'm worried that they're going to have it again. Maggie, how old are you? In February, I'm going to I'm gonna be 11. I, I just communicate um, when I told you 10, but I'm going to be 11 on February. Well, thanks so much for calling in. Are your parents feeling better now? Yes, they are. They drink something. I don't know what was it, but now they're good. And uh, I, I, I don't blame Maggie. Thank you so much for talking with us, um, Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, from being concerned about her family uh, getting the coronavirus again. Can you talk a little bit and respond to Maggie's question about that concern and also some research if you have any or any new understanding about um, just the long-term impact of the coronavirus and, and whether or not uh, having it once does protect you. So Maggie, thank you for, for calling in and, uh, and uh, your concern for your parents. So the, the, what we know right now is that um, if you've had the, the, um, the coronavirus infection, um, we think that you probably won't get it again. Um, that, um, that people develop antibodies and um, those last for a period of time. And so probably your parents um, in the next few months are not likely to get, um, get an infection again. And so that should make you uh, and your family feel a little safer. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't do all the things that we all have to do to protect ourselves in terms of masks, in terms of making sure if we're not feeling well to stay at home. Um, but I think in the short term, um, we don't see people getting infected again. In the longer term, I will say we don't really know. We don't know whether the antibodies that help you fight infection are ones that are going to keep, are going to stay for a long period of time because we haven't had enough time to follow people. And we don't know, um, we, we don't know how they might, um, might uh, decline over time. And that's one of the, the, this is a virus where we're still learning a lot. There are a lot of investigators around the country trying to understand what we can learn about immunity in the longer term. And it is why even when people have had this, infection, they still have to take precautions because we don't know enough about their ability to transmit to others um, or whether in a longer period of time, whether there is a risk of reinfection. But everything points right now to short term, it's unlikely. Maggie, thanks so much for calling in and I, I hope that information helps you. It reminds me of a piece from Edgar Sandoval, the New York Times, who just wrote a piece titled, I went home to Texas to cover the virus, then my family got it. Edgar Sandoval, thanks so much for joining us. Edgar Sandoval, are you there? Hi, I'm sorry, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being on. You write in your piece that you never expected that you would be part of this story. And as I understand it, you yourself had coronavirus and then you recovered from it and then headed to Texas to see your family. What did you mean by when you say, I never expected that I'd be part of the story? Right. So um, I became infected with the virus um, back in March in New York City. Um, and a month later, I got tested and I uh, found out that I developed the antibodies. 
So I, like the doctor said a little while ago, I felt uh, relatively immune to the virus. Um, and, and that's part of why I volunteered to cover the story in South Texas. Uh, my family lives there. I, I returned to the, to the valley, as we call it, over and over to cover the different immigration crisis. Um, and my family was, was taking precautions that, that you guys discussed a little earlier, uh, wearing gloves, masks, uh, social distancing. So I thought um, I'm going to go see my family for a few days and then cover a story uh, like we do. And then what did you find about find out about your family members? Yeah, I'm, I'm buying uh, my luggage and, and getting uh, uh, myself ready for the trip when my sister texted me a day before uh, I boarded the plane. And I thought she was joking for a minute because she said something like, uh, brother, everyone in the family has COVID. And at first I thought, uh, and she sent me a, um, an emoji with eye rolls. <laughs> so I thought she was joking at first. And then I called her and said, what are you saying? What is this? And then I realized um, that a lot of my family members have been uh, showing symptoms. So even though they were taking precautions, what do you think caused such a large number of cases to spread throughout your family? They were taking precautions um, until the government ordered a state to reopen. I think a lot of people took that as a sign that things were going back to normal. Uh, people could, back, could go back to work. Um, in my family's case, they had a uh, medical trip planned to Houston a while back already. And, uh, you know, Latino families are usually closed, right? So when, when somebody goes to a pivotal medical appointment, uh, we tend to go together just to, for, for support. And that's what happened here. They took a family trip to Houston. Um, it was originally, I'm thinking like six people that were in, in, in the car, two different cars, switching back and forth. And then they visited family members in the area. And by the time they got back to the border on Father's Day, uh, almost everyone has been showing symptoms. Uh, I think you're underscoring the point that messages from officials in the reopening played a role here, it sounds like. I think everyone played a role. I think a lot of people let the guard down. Um, you know, people are also uh, trained to trust officials, right? When, when the people who are uh, held to office uh, are supposed to be informing the public about how to best get themselves safe. Um, when they say, it's okay, go back to work, leave the house. So a lot of people follow those guidelines. But then also, I think with family, we feel this certain sense of security <laughs> that it's family, right. right? Right. You know, my sisters and my mom live in the same block, you know, so um, they're used to seeing each other frequently. Um, and it's after three months of uh, relatively lockdown, seeing each other from afar, dropping groceries in the door, running away. Uh, three months later, you kind of, you know, it's human nature to want to see your family members um, up close. So how are they now? Um, my mother is home now, uh, breathing through a uh, uh, oxygen, uh, I've got the term now, um, facilitator, uh, and everyone else is recovering slowly. They're still uh, showing symptoms, body aches, you know, whenever someone walks a block or two, they, they're short of breath. Um, you know, the virus tends to have long consequences even after a couple of weeks. Yes, long consequences. For yes. sure. Well, really appreciate you sharing your story and the piece that, that you wrote in the New York Times today. Thanks so much Thank for you. coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Edgar Sandoval, criminal justice reporter for the New York Times. We're also talking with Tatiana Sanchez, immigration and civil rights reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, Jacqueline Martinez-Garcel, 
a CEO of the Latino Community Foundation, and Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF. And let's go now to Anna. Anna, join us. Yes, hello. Hi, thanks so much for calling. What would you like to share? Thank you. Uh, I actually ended up contracting COVID here at work through one of my coworkers, and it, there's about 22 of us here that work, and roughly about half of us ended up with it. How are you feeling? I feel good now. Mine was kind of a mild case. Um, I had fever for maybe a day and a half, two days, and other than that, I was tired for maybe about a week. Did you feel like you could stay home? I mean, were you wanting to work when you knew that the pandemic was really, and cases were soaring throughout, beginning to soar throughout California? Yes, I, I wanted to work. It's, it's kind of something that's filmed in my parents. My parents um, recalled to me about the times when, you know, my grandparents lived through the Spanish flu pandemic, and it was um, a proud thing to have a job to be able to go to work and to, to you know, have the luxury of having a job and you know to go in and to do your part even knowing the risks it was something to be proud of and I I came to work I knew the risks and I was felt fortunate to have a job during this time so yeah if, if I had it to do all over again I, I I still would and I was fortunate to have a mild case um, I did end up unfortunately, bringing it home and my husband contracted it and his case was not so mild. I'm sorry to hear that. He's better now though, Anna? Uh, he is, he is. It wasn't severe, but it was, you know, not as mild as mine. His fever lasted probably about 10 days and he's actually on week three now and, and still currently in recovery. He's just, you know, having a harder time coming back from it you before I let you go about your workplace and the precautions that it took? Uh, yeah, we did practice social distancing. Our work handed out masks to us all. Um, our Where we work, uh, we were able to make our own hand sanitizer, so we had store-bought sanita hand sanitizer as well as we made our own, so we all practiced precautionary, and we're um, pretty isolated from one another as well in our work departments. And uh, you're back at work now and, and feeling safe? Er? Uh, yes, yes, we're still, <laughs> I mean, Safer, I guess as safe as we wrong. can be. I mean, we're still practicing our safest measures as we can. Well, thanks for sharing your story, Anna. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And let's go now to caller Michael in San Francisco. Hi, Michael. Hi, good morning. Thank Thanks. you for another wonderful show. Forum is days every day. Um, I'm curious. I'm a, I'm a teacher in Northeast San Francisco, and a lot of my students, uh, you know, our, our school's probably 60% Asian, We're mostly working class, mostly immigrant families. And, you know, looking at the population of San Francisco, I think the Asian population in SF is about 35% now, something like that. So I'm wondering if we're seeing a similar you know, similar tendencies and trends in the Asian community. We have a lot of extended families and, 
you know, Chinatown's one of the densest communities uh, in the nation. So I'm wondering if we're seeing parallels with the Asian community in terms of working class and immigrant families. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the question, Michael. Tatiana Sanchez, you actually did do some research looking at the Asian American community in San Francisco. And I think you did find that also uh, they are being infected at disproportionate rates relative to the population numbers. Yes, and I think that's a great point to make because we are seeing similar themes. Um, you know, um, like the gentleman said, where we also know that in, in Asian families, um, they are also very close and very family oriented and often live um, multi uh, families in one household and have uh, are more susceptible to contracting the virus. And in San Francisco, that also is what the data show is a disproportionate number of cases impacting uh, Asian residents. So we are seeing, I think also it's important to note um, that black residents across California are dying at disproportionate rates. So people of color are being impacted in different ways, but we're seeing the same underlying themes impacting these communities. And that has been really devastating for these communities. Jacqueline Martinez Garcel, we've touched on so many different uh, drivers of high infection rates in the community. And we've talked about the need for you know better, better data, for more access to testing, better information. Uh, better be benefits uh, and ability to be able to not work if you're ill. What would you add in terms of ways that we can also try to blunt this rise in uh, in infections that we're seeing right now really playing out? Yeah, I mean, to Tatiana's point of the caller right now, this is something that's impacting communities of color as a whole. And I think to look at this from a lens of racism and anti-racist policies is really important. Um, and we can't... Uh, tear apart the reality that the underinvestment in our communities has been there for decades, if not longer. Um, and, you know, when I think about the fact that these communities didn't have access to healthcare prior to this um, is part of the problem, that one out of four Latinos had diabetes or asthma. Same numbers are true for the Black community. And so when we think about the solutions, we have to look at the policies that are enacted from a race and racial lens. And something as simple as reinvesting and increasing revenue into our communities is a solution. The connection of schools and communities first right now needs to be made. That's a ballot measure that will be put on, on in the November 3rd election that will reinvest $12 billion annually back into our schools and community. Well, that money will actually make it possible for communities to actually rebuild in a way where access to healthcare, school services, mental health services, yes. um, addressing the basic needs are taken care of. Well, we just have 30 seconds or so left, Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, but Masha asks, what can we do to support farm workers, 90% of whom are Latino? And I believe you mentioned Imperial County earlier as well. Do you have any thoughts from Masha before we go? No, just to understand that the forces we're talking about, we see in rural settings, in ur urban settings, and in suburban settings. And um, I think people thought farm workers are going to be spared because they're more, they're outdoors, more naturally distanced. But the congregate living settings and the other conditions, as as well as no protection, um, it really is is a challenge. And I think it's one of the things we really have to focus on. California has to start thinking like the state of California and protecting our vulnerable communities 
in all of the areas where they're at risk and particularly the Latino community, which is so essential both to our, our demographics overall in California and to our economy. And so we are really gonna have to take it seriously. Dr. Kirsten Bibbins, Domingo, Jacqueline Martinez-Garcel, Tatiana Sanchez, thanks to all of you for talking with us. I'm Mina Kim, this is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.